0: Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Keevan, and it is great to be with you here this wonderful afternoon as we get ready for Purim just around the corner. In fact, Purim is less than two weeks away, a week and a half to Purim. There's a lot to talk about as we get ready for this amazing, special, and jolly Holiday, and we know the Festival of Purim is celebrated every year on the fourteenth day of the Hebrew month of Adar. It commemorates the salvation of the Jewish people in ancient Persia from Haman's plot, which was "lamad olah harig is He wanted to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, menar in young and old, infants and women, biyom in one single day. And, in fact, those are the exact words from the Megillah that I was quoting to you. The Persian Empire of the 4th century before the Common Era, it actually, the Megillah tells us, it extended over 127 lands, and all the Jews were its subjects. So when King Ahasuerus had his wife, Queen Vashti, executed for failing to follow his orders, he arranged this beauty page in to find a new queen and as we know a young Jewish girl by the name of Esther who was very beautiful she found favor in his eyes and she became the new queen though she refused to actually divulge her real nationality that she was Jewish meanwhile the Jew hating Haman or Hamana Russia was appointed the prime minister of the Empire and Mordechai, who was leader of the Jews and happened to be Esther's cousin, defied the king's orders and refused to bow down to Haman. Haman was incensed. He convinced the king to issue a decree ordering the extermination of all the Jews on the 19th day of Adar. Sorry, the 13th day of Adar. My apologies. That, how did he come up with that date? Actually, he did so by casting lots. And his lots landed him on that day, the 13th day of Adar. Now Mordechai galvanized the Jewish people, everyone, convinced them to do teshuva, to repent, to fast, to pray to God. And meanwhile, Esther asked the king and Haman to join her for a feast. And then at that feast, she invited them for another feast. And at that subsequent feast, Esther revealed to the king, her true Jewish identity. Haman wound up being hanged and Mordechai was appointed prime minister in his stead. And then, a new decree was issued granting the Jews the right to defend themselves against their enemies. Ladies and gentlemen, on the 13th of Adar that year, the Jews mobilized and defended themselves and on the 14th day of Adar, They finally rested and celebrated in the capital of city of Shushan. Megillah tells us that they took one more day in order to finish their job. And so, my friends, that is the story of Purim in a nutshell. The other nutshell, they say, is, well, they tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. Today, my friends, I want to talk a little bit about the Jewish response to prejudice. Because we know how the story of Purim, as we just discussed, how our deliverance from the hands of evil Haman, it's a gripping, dramatic, and electrifying story. In fact, I wonder if there's a movie that has perhaps been produced about it. But there's one part of the story that actually seems to be largely ignored. And it's covered up by the glamour, the glory of the heroine's rescue of how Esther managed to save her people. And in order to do this in the most ideal way and most extensively, I really want to go actually into the texts of the Megillah. Because by analyzing some of the texts today, and maybe next week as well, we can actually get a very good idea and analyze an important part of the story. You see, Haman, who was the viceroy, the prime minister, the second-in-command ...of this vast and powerful Persian Empire. And his defeat is what we're celebrating on the holiday of Purim. He makes a very short but a powerful and persuasive presentation... ...to his superior, to the Persian king Ahasuerus. And he's trying to persuade him why it's a good idea... ...to embrace his idea, his plan of Jewish genocide... And if you look in the Megillah, what does Haman say? This is in chapter 3. says, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, Yeshna, listen to these words, There is a certain people that is scattered, separate, among the peoples. Throughout all the provinces of your kingdom. And these people, their laws are different from those of all the other people. And the instructions of the king, they don't perform, they don't listen. And therefore, it's of no use for the king to let them be. And therefore he requests of King labdam. If it pleases the king, let it be written down to destroy them. And Haman tells the king, you don't have to worry about the cost of this extermination program. You know, concentration camps cost money to build and all that. Don't worry. I'll pay the 10,000 silver talents into the hands of those who perform the dirty work. And it will all be taken care of. Actually, he says, Al-Ginzi HaMelech will be put it into the king's treasuries. Let's just think for a moment. Haman's argument is quite straightforward and clear. Jews are different. We are alien. We are outsiders. We're an obstruction to normal society. We don't fit into the rest of the human family. We have their own faith. We have our own laws. We are different than everyone else. As he describes, we're a nuisance, a threat, a growth in an otherwise harmonious and integrated society. And therefore, he's trying to persuade the king to dispose of the Jews. Now, the Talmud actually records an oral tradition describing Haman's presentation with a little bit more detail. And the Talmud weaves the narrative through the words, of this account. What does it mean, that that their laws are different, from those of the rest of the people? Says the Gemara in Tractate Megillah, they don't eat, from our food. And they don't, marry, our people. What does it mean, they don't keep the king's laws? Says the Gemara, that they waste the whole year avoiding the king's work with the excuse. You know, they say today is Shabbos, this day is Pesach. Every day they have an excuse why they can't work, or not really every day. It's more like every seventh day. But whatever the case is, it's good to exaggerate a bit when you want to persuade and convince people of your thoughts. So Haman, he discusses various character traits of the Jewish people. And he says, And therefore, it's of no use, no value for the king to let these people be. And the Gemara tells us what he said. They eat, they drink, they disgrace the throne. Even if a fly falls into the wine glass of one of them, guess what? Halacha says they could cast away the fly and drink the wine. But if His Highness the king will touch the wine glass... No, yayin Nesach, they'll throw it away, they won't drink it, they can't have it. Now this is very interesting, because we know this is a law in Halacha, that it's forbidden for us to derive of what's called yayin Nesach. And therefore, halachically speaking, although if a fly falls into the wine, we can expel it and drink the wine, but if wine that was used for idolatrous purposes, and if we don't know, then there's good reason, and there's good reason certainly, to plausibly feel that way. Then as Haman argues, the Jews, they see themselves as different, as superior, as better. They're always standing out, who needs these, this fifth column? Now this is some story that actually repeats itself so many times throughout our history. And actually, th- these same words were repeated by others, by Athenians and Romans. And in fact, one of the great Greek philosophers some six centuries later, by the name of Philosterus, he, in fact, summarized the pagan world's perception of the Jews. And he says, the Jews have long been in revolt, not only against the Romans, but against humanity and a race that has made its own life apart and irreconcilable that cannot share with the rest of mankind in the pleasures of the table, nor join in the libations or prayers or sacrifices are separated from ourselves by a greater gulf than divides us from surah or bastra of the more distant Indies. Well, our sages tell us that Sura is actually another name for Shushan, and these are geographic, I guess, metropolises of those days. Again, the same argument repeated, and it's repeated thousands and thousands of times throughout history. The great Roman historian Tacitus, who lived in the first century of the Common Era, He said, The Jews regard as profane all that we hold sacred. On the other hand, they permit all that which we abhor. Toward every other people they feel only hate and enmity. They sit apart at meals, they sleep apart, and although as a race they are prone to lust, they abstain from intercourse with foreign women. And one example he mentions to describe the moral conflict between the Romans and the Jews, just one of many, he says the Jews regarded a crime to kill any newborn infant. The Romans, as the Greeks before them, they killed any mentally or physically handicapped infants. In their minds, keeping such children alive was pointless, was unesthetic, and to them, that was a waste of human race. So, just noticing how the same anti-Semitic tropes, these very same themes, just keep repeating themselves. Now let's just go back to the story of Perm. Here you have the viceroy, the Prime Minister Haman's argument to persuade the king. A decree is issued from the Persian throne. Every Jewish man, woman, and child living under Persian dominance would be exterminated on, as we summarized at the beginning, the 13th of Adar. And then, in a delightful turn of events, First Lady, the Jewish Queen Esther, invites her husband and Haman to a drinking feast. And as we recall, Esther, from all the thousands of young women who were brought from across the empire as potential candidates for the queen, it was Esther who found favor in the eyes of the king. What does the Megillah describe? The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won more of his favor and grace than all the other women. He set the royal crown upon her head. Years later, at this wine feast, the king pledges to Esther that he would fulfill any wish she had, up to half the kingdom he's willing to give her. And here's where she utilizes this opportunity. And she makes her fateful pitch. What are the words on the Megillah, chapter 7? Vatan Esther Hamalka, Vatama Esther, Queen Esther replied, and she said, if I found favor in your eyes, O King, v'imalamelach toiv, and if it pleases the King, tinasen li'navshi b'shelasi, v'amii bevakashasi, may my life be given to me in your petition, in my petition to you, and may my people, in my request to you. And she goes on, ki im nimkarnu ani v'amii. For me and my people have been sold to be destroyed, to be slain, to perish. And now that we've been sold for slaves, bondswomen, okay, that we can handle. But this is far worse. Esther is attempting to approach this issue from two sides. There's a personal one, and she actually says, "Ein hatsar shova She says. For the adversary has no consideration for the king's loss. She actually puts economics in the story. First, she exposes her Jewish identity. She makes it very personal that she's a member of the Jewish people and therefore she's condemned to this destiny, to this, to death. Esther knows that this alone might not do the trick. So she continues to discuss ransom sense, haman, we know, also used this two-point approach in persuading King Ahasuerus. Logic and cash. Cash is king. So, by selling the Jews as slaves, Esther argued, at least there would be a profit more than exterminating them. The money that Haman offered him is minuscule. If you're going to compare, you're going to wait against the potential profit of selling the whole nation into slavery. So Ahasuerus, we well, hadn't known before that Esther was Jewish. He's outraged at Haman. And we know what happens. He has Haman executed and the decree is subverted. And now, pursuant to subsequent requests for Esther, Ahasuerus grants the Jews the right to defend themselves against anyone who would dare to harm them. The whole climate in the Persian Empire towards the Jews is completely transformed by the Jews having the right to defend themselves. And now, everything changes. Esther's first cousin, Mordechai, is appointed the viceroy of Egypt and he replaces Haman in this prime ministerial position. Now, there's, I'm sure, many questions that we need to talk about here. Haman didn't argue the case for Jewish extermination just on the basis of senseless, venomous passion. He actually presented what the king considered a sound and persuasive case He argued that we're an alien growth, we're bizarre people, we're a separatist nation, that we're different than everyone else. You can't tolerate a fifth column in your empire. Now that's a very strong accusation and Ahasuerus accepted it. And as a result, that's why he signed the decree demanding that Jews, all men, women and children should be exterminated. All of a sudden, King Ahasuerus is willing to listen to Esther and is persuaded to another decree. We have to understand this. And we'll be right back. Chai FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Chai FM, I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Keevman. And we were talking before about the story of Purim. And just to recap, we talked about how Haman presents a compelling argument to Hashverosh about a separatist and elitist Jewish nation that's like a fifth column. And he claims... This, all these accusations against us. And we know that this claim repeated itself many, many times throughout the generations by many Jew haters. And unfortunately, we have suffered throughout our history as a result of these accusations lodged against us. But when we look to see how Esther responded, we don't find her contending, arguing those claims. Esther simply woos HaShverosh and the story is over. So what about the actual issues? What's the real answer to those accusations? Now, before we examine Esther's response or her lack thereof, let's see how a similar terrible accusations have been addressed in the history of our people. And to do so, let's go back in time to the drama and the intrigue at the court of Louis IX, the King of France the year is 1240 of the Common Era. Nicholas Dunan of La Rochelle, he was a Jew converted to Christianity in early 13th century Paris. He was excommunicated from the ghetto by the rabbi of the community, Rabbi Echil of Paris, in the presence of the entire community with all the accepted formalities of a cherem, of excommunication. And after living in excommunication for 10 years... Though still clinging to Judaism, he was baptized into the Roman Catholic Church and he joined the Franciscan order. Now, Dunan's first act of retaliation as a Franciscan was to stir up bands of crusaders to, perpet- to perpetrate the massacres of Brittany, of Poitou and Anjo, in which 3,000 Jews sadly were killed and 500 accepted the alternative, which was baptism. And then, just, um, two years before, Dunin, he actually went to Rome, and he presented himself before the Pope, George, uh, Gregory the IX at the time, and he publicly denounced the Talmud. Thirty-five articles were drawn up in which Dunin charged that the Talmud contains virulent attacks against the virginity of Mary, and the divinity of the Christian Savior. The Pope was persuaded that the accusations against the Jews had merit, and he dispatched the transcripts of the charges to church officials, along with an order to seize all copies of the Talmud and deposit them with the Dominicans and Franciscans. And so, the the books of Talmud, and just think about it, there were no publishing houses yet then. So, all this... We're talking about is handwritten manuscripts, scrolls of the Talmud were burned. Now, this was 1238. Go back to 1240. The Jews were compelled. In fact, this is March 1240, the time of Purim. The Jews were compelled under pain of death to surrender their Talmuds. And Louis the ninth ordered four of the most distinguished French rabbis, including Rabbi Yechil of Paris, Rabbi Moshe of Kuzi, Rabbi Yehud of Malun, and Shmuel ben Shalom of Chateau, to answer Dunin in a public debate. A great disputation. And although the disputants were, and are to this day believed by many to have successfully defended Judaism, the actual outcome of the debate was really ignored. And a decree was nonetheless passed to publicly burn all the available manuscripts of the Talmud as much as they tried to defend it. And 24 carriage loads of handwritten Talmudic works were set ablaze in the heart of Paris. And one of the critical texts that Nicholas cited as evidence for Talmudic division of the Gentile was, the Gemara tells us, That Rabbi Shimon bar taught that even the best of one of those Gentiles during war should be killed. Now, look at that. What a bombshell. Nicholas seems to have found a pretty compelling proof that the Jews harbor intense hatred to non-Jews because there's a statement in the Talmud that during war, even the best of those Gentiles should be killed. Seems irrefutable, right? So how did Rabbi Yechil respond? The first thing he set out to do was explain that there are two, when we use the word goyim, some people think of it usually as derogatory. Literally the word goyim means nations. But let's listen to his words and how he explained it on that particular day so we can understand particularly in the context. So Rabbi Yechil of Paris said, the, or at least the manuscript describing it says, The heretic raised his voice and exclaimed, You are wicked, for you have permitted spilling Gentile blood. Do not the rabbi say even the best of the Gentiles should be killed? To which Rabbi Echiel of Paris responded, With your many words, your sins do not cease. And now I'll address your claims and lay rest to, your, to what you say. Know that the word goy, which is commonly translated as a Gentile, has both negative and positive connotations. A positive reference can be found there's a verse that we say, "That Hallelujah, Hashem, Hallelujah, Hashem, Kol Goyim." We said it yesterday in Hallel. Praise God, all the nations of the world. Praise God, right? All the nations. But a negative reference, he said, can be found in a verse, "Kol Goyim, May the wicked return to the grave, all the Goyim who forget God. Now, after explaining that there are two types of Goyim, Rabbi Yechiel went out to point out that if you look carefully at the words of the Talmud, of Rabbi Shema bar Yachai, when did he say that a Jew can actually kill another? He was talking specifically during war. And that's an important detail. And hopefully, when you put a a hateful statement like that, at least into its context, it's not that Jews hate non-Jews, God forbid. Even the good ones, as this anti-Semite tried to point out. He's talking specifically in war, where people are fighting you. Even if they have some redeeming quality, the very fact that they are fighting with you, they're waging a war against you, that is proof of their hatred. And in such times, it is imperative that you kill them before they kill you. That is what the Talmud says. And so Rabbi Yechiel goes on and shares with them another place in the Talmud where the Talmud says exactly that point, and that was specifically referring to when the Jews were in their Egyptian exile. And we'll talk more about that when we're back. I FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Sultan Salam, Rabbi Ari And we were talking before, we started off talking about Haman's claims and then how much later on in 1240, just another famous story of a Jewish heretic who challenged the righteous Rabbi Yechiel of Paris with similar claims. And yet Rabbi Yechiel was taken to task on these various Talmudic statements and how he valiantly tried fending off and defending all these vicious attacks against us. But our favorite character, Esther, the queen, did nothing like that. What is her reply to all these vicious barbs of the wicked Haman? And what I want to do in our remaining seven minutes today is to share with you an explanation from the Rebbe that I feel is pertinent and relevant. Because on Purim of 1969, as America was involved in the space race and the struggle for civil rights and social freedoms, the Rebbe was sitting in New York, And he gave a talk on Purim in 770, at the Lubavitch World Headquarters. And the Fabrengan lasted for many hours and the Hasidim assembled were privileged to hear a most passionate address. And the Rebbe spoke with tremendous zeal and he used the Megillah and its storyline to impress on all the people present one of the most important lessons of what it means to be a Jew in the modern world. And the Rebbe's words ring as true today as they did then. And the Rebbe began by taking a look at the Purim story and he noticed how it seems like there's this thundering silence in the face of Haman's argument and he asked the same question, where is Esther's answer? She doesn't seem to address this accusation of Haman. And here's what the Rebbe explained. Some questions are resolved by answers. Some arguments are refuted by counter arguments. But there are beliefs and notions that require neither debate nor dialogue to disprove them. Reality does the job. When reality is exposed, they dissolve into nothingness. And so Haman's allegations were exactly of that category. Esther responded to Haman's arguments for Jewish genocide, not by dialogue, not by engaging in his arguments, but by her sheer mere presence The moment she identified herself as a member of the Jewish people and as a product of the Jewish faith, Haman's thesis vanished. Shrevish knew Esther personally, intimately. She was his wife. He sensed her soul. He touched her grace. He cherished her personality. He adored her glow, her charm. He would do almost anything for her as he explicitly told her. He knew that Esther's character and values were noble. We're dignified. We're pure, and he chose her from all the thousands of young maidens in his whole kingdom. Yet Achashverosh still never realized that she was Jewish, that she is a daughter of the Jewish people, a product of the Jewish faith. Now at this feast, Esther told him, "Achashverosh, my good man, you know me, the woman you loved more than anyone else. Well, I'm from that very nation that this scoundrel suggests hate you." I am one of those hateful dissent, dissident Jews who plot only to harm you and undermine your empire. How preposterous if you know me. And when Ahasuerus suddenly discovered that she was a proud member of the Jewish people and adherent to the Jewish faith, he immediately realized the falsehood of Haman's arguments, not through dialogue and debate, but through Esther's living presence. Esther's day-to-day life demonstrated louder than any argument could ever achieve the absurdity of Haman's arguments that the Jews pose a threat to society. So looking at Esther, seeing her refinement and her beauty, Ahasuerus understood that this alienation that Haman is accusing could not have been what was presented to him. They may be different, but this otherness is something that elevates them, that, that brings them, makes them unique and special. When the when Ahasuerus learned that Esther's special qualities were a symptom of her Jewishness, he didn't need to hear anything more. He got it. He understood it. The last thing he needed to worry about was that the Jewish people and their faith was out to get him, was in some way a threat to his kingdom, to his future. And therefore, my friends, to cut an important lesson uh, short, the lesson is very clear. Sometimes we Jews think that by hiding our otherness of Judaism as a Jewish people that will get us the consent, the approval, the endorsement of others. But the facts prove otherwise. Assimilation, the eclipsing of the uniqueness of the Jewish people has never assuaged the anti-Semites. We as a Jewish people have to realize that it is our otherness that makes us unique, that makes us, that we have to realize who we are. If we want to be respected by the non-Jews, it won't come from running after them, from, from becoming like everyone else. If we want to be respected, whether wherever it might be, we are the ones who have to stand tall and strong, just like Esther. It's the presence of a Jew who's permeated by the love and dignity of Torah and mitzvahs that speaks for itself. The grace of a true Torah Jew. The integrity, the sanctity, the sanctification, that the dedication to God that we live by, that is what proves who we are. And so, my friends, the Rebbe explained that Esther did not need to address those arguments directly because her own persona did the job. As soon as Ahasuerus discovered that his beloved wife was Jewish, he understood that Haman's claims were preposterous. And though she was different, and Jewish people are different, but that is what makes us who we are. And I think the message is so clear. The best and the only way to show the nations of the world that we are not worthy of annihilation is by sticking to our faith. If we pander to modern culture, then we'll be stamped out by it. But when we stand tall, proud of our faith, then the nations of the world will learn to respect and honor us and we can be proud of our identity, of who we are. Ladies and gents, I think it's a very powerful and important lesson that we don't have to answer the arguments of anti-Semitism. We just have to be proudly Jewish. Ladies and gents, remember our message here on Soul to Soul, where we say, carpe diem, seize every moment. And remember to aspire to inspire before you expire. Have a great Shabbos. Thanks for joining us.